It is another delightful opportunity that's been given to each of us to gather on this evening in the way we've done it, to come together for the purpose of honoring and exalting and magnifying God as we look forward to worshiping. And so far as we have lifted our voices in song, what a great enterprise it has been. In fact, as we gather and we pray and we do the things that God has authorized in His Word, what an encouraging way to start the week and what an encouragement to be a faithful Christian. As you probably can tell, the title of the lesson tonight is but one word. It is that word that found itself near the close of that verse that Andrew read just a minute ago in John 18, verse number 10. We're going to invest a few moments tonight to study a gentleman named Malchus. As we do that, it might well be you haven't heard very many sermons about Malchus. He is a gentleman, of course, that finds a very brief crossing of the biblical stage, but there isn't a great deal said about him. But nonetheless, God's Word so full of information, you and I have much that we can glean from an appreciation of the record of Malchus. Some introductory comments might well begin like this. You and I will recognize that that precious book that you hold in your lap, that Word of God, the Bible, is a precious and powerful book, among other things, setting forward what humans have done. The Bible, in many ways, sets before us an amazing consideration of events in history. It does that, of course, by being very straightforward. Isn't it true, as you and I learn from 1 Samuel 21, for example, David pretended to be a crazy man. That really happened. It's not that the biblical writers made that up. It's not that it's just a cute story. It really happened. Or when we come to 2 Corinthians 12, the closing two verses of that chapter, Paul really was let down through a window using a basket from Damascus. That really happened. I suppose we live in a time when on TV there's virtual television shows Reality programming, if you please. And sometimes those scripts clearly are presented in such a way to make a very nice broadcastable story. There's no embellishment to the Bible record. These things happened. So it, so it is with Malchus. Although what we read about him may be brief, nonetheless, it's a telling thing. And tonight we're going to revisit some of those scenes ourselves. You'll notice as you look at the middle part of that slide... We understand so carefully that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Inasmuch as the Word of God then is inspired of God, inasmuch as it's breathed of God, it behooves us to appreciate all of its features, including those that otherwise might be a bit brief. With regard to Malchus, here's the setting. I mentioned a moment ago that the number of passages that refer to him are exceedingly few. In fact, there's but one occasion on which we find record of Malchus in the Word of God, but I suppose in a thankful way, all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they refer to that single event, they at least allow us to conclude that Malchus had, of course, an appreciation in them. And so I've stated it as follows. All four gospel accounts give us a record of any, an event that took place. And although his name doesn't appear in all of them, 
you and I could appreciate that his is the scene that took place. Malchus. No wonder then with that in mind, let's set the, let's set the stage for that which took place. It was a mere few hours before the crucifixion of our Lord. You and I remember that on that previous evening, he celebrated the Passover with his apostles, and it was a very compelling time. It was on that occasion, and ultimately near the close, he would institute that memorial that you and I still celebrate until this day. But not only that, we also remember that during the events of that time, when all those things were concluded, Jesus proceeded to a place called Gethsemane. As you'll notice, he often resorted to this place, according to John 18, verses 2 and 3. It was a place in which we well understand that something rather monumental also took place. As our Savior came to that location, all the disciples except Judas were with him. And then we quickly notice he singled out Peter, James, and John, took them a little bit further. And then he asked them to watch and to be ready. Jesus went about a stone's cast even farther, and he proceeded, the text says, to be very heavy and very sorrowful. He knew very well what was to transpire in just a very few hours. He knew very well the death that he was destined to suffer as he prayed so earnestly and so fervently that very evening. Matthew informs us in Matthew 26, 37, that of course they were found sleeping when the Master returned. Not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus would seemingly have very much longed for their encouragement, their edification to him, but they were asleep. When all those events drew dear to their conclusion, we notice that Jesus quickly made statement to them about the fact, as you can see, a gentle rebuke about, couldn't you stay awake with me an hour? And then we notice Judas came. But he didn't come by himself. He brought a great multitude, the text says, a whole host of particular servants and those that were officers from the chief priests and others. As they came, you'll notice they came with swords, with staves and with lanterns. They weren't coming for a social visit. And we know Judas, of course, had brought them because he was to identify the one that they were to arrest. He was to identify the one that he was about to betray. As Judas planted a kiss on our Savior, wouldn't you have somewhat been interested to hear that interesting question? Jesus asked of him, Judas, betrayest thou with a kiss? Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And yet we will appreciate that when all that band came, some of these events quickly unfolded. You probably can imagine in the, mind, in the eye of your mind about the somewhat difficult and interesting scene that would have developed. A large group of people, they were about to try to arrest this one that the disciples recognized in such a respectful and high way. These comments seemingly readily follow. Notice the first question that Jesus asked of this group when they came. Whom seek ye? I've always thought it very intriguing, the immediate response. Whom seek ye? They said, we look for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. He did not in any way deny it. He didn't try to shift the consideration and identification to anybody else. I'm the one you're looking for. 
The text in John 18 verses 4 and 5 says, They went backward and fell to the ground. That immediately suggests that they were exceedingly interested in terms of the respect they apparently had appreciated in him. They went backward, fell to the ground. However, you'll notice Jesus then asked again, Whom do you seek? And they said, We seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you I'm the one. The scene seems to quicken. Your pulse and mind probably races a little bit more as we come to the succeeding verses. You'll notice Jesus then made the request, I'm the one that you seek, let the other ones go. Jesus even recognized that there may be matters of safety now that we're going to face, those that were his associates. What was about to unfold was, of course, going to lead to his own death. In addition to that, you might notice at the bottom, we appreciate, of course, ultimately, that as Judas identified Jesus, they did arrest him. But there were some more things that quickly took place. Let's go to the next slide and appreciate what they were. The disciples then asked Jesus an interesting question. As he was about to be bound or arrested, they asked, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? You can imagine the numbers. We don't know how large a group came with Judas. Perhaps there were quite a, a large number. Again, again, the text says a great multitude. But yet here, the Christ's own disciples, they responded, Lord, shall we smite with a sword? Shall we try to defend you? Shall we try to make sure they do not take you? In response to that, Peter drew his sword, and he cut off the right ear of a gentleman named Malchus. You can imagine as the blood proceeded and the scene was probably a very telling one, Peter had done this. And the scene rather quickly closes immediately with Jesus healing the ear of Malchus. And not only that, he issued a somewhat direct rebuke to Peter and the others for acting and for thinking the way they did. We'll look at some of those things as we proceed through the lesson this evening. As you've imagined all of that in your mind tonight, picture of the scene concerning Malchus again. Your right ear has just been cut off. You came as one commanded to do so, no doubt, by virtue of the high priest and the others who were serving him, and yet you've now had your ear cut off by one who, in fact, this man named Peter, who was one of the chief disciples of the one you've come to arrest. No doubt a rather chaotic, frenetic scene could have developed. We all know today what happens if you refuse what the policemen try to do. The scene seemingly on the news just every little time about what ultimately seems to happen. On this occasion, there are several lessons, it seems to me, we can learn even from what we've studied so far. Let's try to develop them as follows. Lesson number one. What a tremendous an interesting thought it is to appreciate the concept of Bible summation. I stated at the outset of our study tonight that this consideration concerning Malchus, it does occur in the four gospel accounts, but isn't it amazing that the details provided in the various accounts is different? All of that taken together leads us to notice we don't have the full and complete story until and unless we have taken all four accounts and pieced them together harmoniously 
and piece them together thoroughly and completely. Again, that teaches us a great deal about Bible summation. As you and I develop the thought, we might well begin it in ways like this. Consider what Matthew and Mark have to say about this scene. It is in those two books that we learn very clearly that somebody drew a sword and cut off one of the ears of the high priest's servant. We do not know which ear. We don't know the name of the disciple that did it. We don't even know the name of the priest's servant whose ear was removed. When we come over to Luke and John, you'll notice we learn some more things. Luke tells us that it was the right ear. We've learned more information. Not only that, it's Luke that informs us that Jesus healed the ear. None of the other three accounts tell us that. Finally, in John, we learn even more. We learn it was Simon Peter that did it. Isn't that intriguing? And thus, the completeness and the fullness of the story, we do not have until we've put together the biblical accounts on all four occasions. Again, perhaps the idea might be developed along ways like this. Isn't it vitally important, in fact, extremely so, that you and I be very mindful about the nature of Bible summation. The fact is, is it, that we do not know the fullness of God's matter or His revelation on a certain point until we know all that He has said about that topic. We are not able to take just a verse and hope that that fully expresses all of it if He has said any more about it. The Bible on several occasions teaches us that principle, doesn't it? We might, in fact, revisit the Old Testament for just a moment. In Psalm 119, verse number 160, a passage we frequently referenced and how powerful is its conclusion. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. The way that verse begins, again it says, The greatness of thy word is true from the beginning. Now, as you look to the actual Hebrew rendering of that, it literally means the sum of thy word is truth. And that word sum is not S-O-M-E, it is S-U-M. You and I know well from an early age that in mathematics, when you compute the sum of something, you add up the corresponding and elemental parts of it. So too it remains in regard to our study of the Bible. We must take everything that God has said on a, on a particular subject, properly, rightly divide all of it, and then our conclusion will stand as the tested matter in which God has revealed it. It is a tragedy and a pretty sad one, isn't it, when we try to piecemeal take the matters found in the Word of God and fail to harmonize and synthesize all that God has said. Earlier on, we noticed in Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Question, how much of God's word is settled in heaven? A part of it? Most of it? Perhaps the majority of it? The text informs us it is the entirety of it. All of God's word is settled in heaven, and therefore the synthesis of those matters presented to us would be the appreciation of the truth which God has revealed. In verse 142 of that same chapter, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Can't we be thankful for the consideration of the very matter like the one we're studying? Malchus, putting the Bible text together in the correct way. 
you probably can already begin to think of many examples in which that is an essential ingredient. I've chosen to only list one. Have you ever thought about the wonderful nature of God's plan of salvation? Is there any single verse in all of the Bible that teaches all the five steps of the plan of salvation? The answer is no. You can't find all of them in only one verse. But what may you and I do as we look at the conversion accounts in Acts as well as other references to them? In Acts chapter 2, they on Pentecost were told to repent and be baptized. Where was the confession? Where was the statement of necessity to what they were to hear? The Ethiopian nobleman in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. On that occasion, we see a gentleman who directly made a confession, and we also appreciate the record of his baptism. Was he told to repent? It's not included directly. What about if we study the consideration of Paul himself in Acts chapter 9? One more time as we look with detail at that, we come to appreciate easily we must put the entirety of those accounts together, understanding then that there is one thing God demands of each and every one. Acts 15.9 tells us that one thing in relation to the particular development set before us. Some individuals heard and of course they believed, and they repented, they confessed the name of the Master, they were baptized. And today we can have the fullest of assurance and the utmost of confidence that when you and I do exactly the same, we too have obeyed that gospel plan of salvation. Putting things together that way, isn't that a wonderful premise? We see parts of it even in a study of Malchus. It is true as you come to the bottom of that slide we might wonder what other premises are also present as we study this record of Malchus. Would you consider with me for a moment impetuousness? That may be a word that's not greatly familiar to us, but I suspect once we look at the definition, it's easily understandable to us. Perhaps you've known people in your life, maybe you and I have been impetuous on occasion. The word simply by definition means that circumstance in which one acts or behaves in a very quick fashion without thought. One who behaves in such a way to he or she is controlled by emotion and not by rational pursuit. Didn't Peter behave that way? Look back to the scene of Malchus. Here their Savior was in the process of being arrested and you'll notice again the question, Shall we smite with a sword, they asked? Apparently before ever even waiting for Jesus' answer, Peter wheels out his sword and takes off the right ear of Malchus. Acting very boldly, acting very swiftly, acting very impetuously. What might you and I learn about impetuousness? Is it a good thing? Is it always wise? Is it proper and right? You may notice as we begin to look at this, this wasn't by any means the first time that Peter had displayed notable conviction. I would ask you to revisit just a few hours prior to the events of Malchus. In Luke chapter 22, I would ask you to notice verse 33. Jesus on that occasion had, of course, a little conversation with Peter. That was the very conversation in which Peter, of course, was one who Satan desired to have him and sift him as wheat. 
in the course of that discussion, Peter ultimately said to Jesus, I am ready to go to prison for thee and even to die for thee if that's what's demanded. Peter professed tremendous loyalty, fidelity, and faithfulness to the Master. You notice that was embodied at least on this occasion with Malchus. He was ready to fight for Jesus. He did it very impetuously, admittedly. But you'll notice in light of some of our remaining discussions of the evening, wouldn't it be better to always temper one's zeal and to temper one's enthusiasm with a fullness of knowledge and a fullness of understanding and a fullness of propriety? Remember, Jesus had to rebuke Peter after this. Put up your sword, Jesus told him. This is not the way this needs to unfold. Peter was, you see, a little bit mistaken. Perhaps one can't fault his interest in defending what was right, but the way he went about it was not the, the best way. Jesus had to correct him. As you and I think about these, wouldn't it be better to have the conviction of Peter tempered with a fullness of rational thought, to not be governed so much by emotion? You and I would quickly say that the Bible doesn't put to rest all emotion. In our service to God, we should, in fact, be emotionally involved. We should look forward to coming to worship. The songs we sing should be the very thoughts and feeling of our heart. Didn't Jesus say we must worship Him in spirit and in truth? That concept of worshiping Him in spirit means the eagerness and excitement that should fill our heart. But you'll notice that surely has to be tempered with deliberation, tempered with rational and correct thinking. I believe it's more of the lesson last Sunday evening in which Andrew led a consideration in which many have erred today in thinking about some possibility of doing things in worship that are not authorized, governed, in many ways pursued, not by rational consideration of biblical expository work, but pursued because of emotional response. And that's dangerous. can be very sinful. It was in 1 Kings 12, wasn't it? You might notice then how important it is to revisit 1 Thessalonians 5.21. We are commanded to prove all things and to hold to that which is good. That command to prove all things would include one's activities in response to the things of Scripture. What do we say about that? We certainly then can't be too impetuous in which we act without proper thought and without proper biblical understanding. Maybe two final thoughts. The importance of Jesus' authority. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. That doesn't allow you and me then to begin to act in ways without the proper authority. And if the Scriptures haven't presented it, then that matter would be an improper, sinful thing. Peter thus acted too impetuously. Maybe finally, how often the Bible reminds us to not be guilty of speaking before we've considered a matter, Proverbs 18, 13. And furthermore, in Proverbs 31, 16, even that virtuous woman, before she bought the field, the text says she considered it. She didn't act impetuously. She acted very thoroughly, carefully, and with deliberation. Shouldn't that be characteristic of you and of me? Lesson three. 
could we also not notice that there's much to be gleaned as we think about Bible understanding? By that, what do we mean? And what might be appreciated? Consider with me the following. This wasn't the first time that the matter of a sword had been highlighted. Look back to Luke 22. Again, earlier that same evening, there had been a discussion concerning swords. What did Jesus say then? Maybe that will shed some light upon what Peter did, or at least what he may have understood. In Luke chapter 22, I would invite you to notice beginning in verse number 35. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this is that which was written again must be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. Did you notice in this conversation that developed, Jesus said, do you remember when I sent you out on an earlier excursion? He pointed out in verse number 35, when I sent you out without scrip, without purse, did you lack anything? They said, no. All our needs were met. All our necessities were in fact taken care of. Jesus then changed the tone considerably. He said, now, in light of the coming commission which you'll be given and the way in which others will respond to the matters demanded in the gospel. Verse number 36 and 37, he says, He that hath a purse, let him take it. Likewise a scrip, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So notice, Jesus had made reference to a sword. Did you notice in verse 38? Apparently they started counting. How many swords do we have? Two was all they had. It does seemingly suggest one of the ones that had belonged to Peter, for he drew his later and cut off Malchus's ear with it. Isn't it interesting? They had only two swords, and a large multitude had come from the high priest. I wonder how many weapons that group had. Did Peter think that he was going to fight off all that group with only two swords? Apparently so. At the very least, you could appreciate the following with me. They then, in verse number 49, ask that question we noted earlier. Shall we smite with the sword? They were under the impression then that a physical battle was perhaps going to ensue, and they were going to thus defend their master, Jesus, and they would do so with these physical swords. Now I suppose we all can see what I meant by that phrase, Bible understanding. The disciples were still under the impression that a physical kingdom was what Jesus was going to reign over. They were still under the illusion that a physical kingdom was what was to happen. They wanted a kingdom like what David had reigned over. They wanted a kingdom like what Solomon had reigned over centuries earlier. That's not what it was to be. In fact, later on, the next day, Jesus straightforwardly would tell Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. But they're not fighting. 
And we still don't push forward the boundaries of the kingdom of God using swords. We don't use tanks. We don't use bombs. That's not the way it's done. The reason it's not done that way is because Jesus said it's not done that way. We understand in terms of these matters, they perceived, persisted in this thought even up until Acts 1 verse 6. After the Lord was resurrected, shortly before His ascension to glory, they still were under the thought that it was going to be a physical kingdom and He had to correct them one last time in Acts 1 verse 6. The kingdom is not going to be of that variety. You and I are blessed today still appreciating that the kingdom of God is this great kingdom that rules in the hearts and lives of men and women, you and me, where Jesus rules on the throne of our heart. And as members of this blessed kingdom, the church, we appreciate the grandeur, of course, that's a part of being in that kingdom. This Bible understanding takes us to appreciate one more time what Jesus then said to Peter. Remember, Jesus to Peter said, Put your sword back up, Peter. Don't you realize that if that had been the way it was done, I could call to my father and he'd send me 12 legions of angels. But that's not the way it's done. I must go to that cross. It's the only hope for human salvation. The kingdom is not of this world. Put up your sword, Peter. Peter, it seems, came to understand that. Think about how he preached on the day of Pentecost. The one who had drawn the sword only a few days, a few weeks earlier, was now the very one who stood and with such boldness proclaimed the fact that by wicked hands you put to death the Son of God, Acts 2.22. But God raised him from the dead. The grave wasn't able to hold him. And Peter, with such confidence and assurance, then preached the unsearchable riches of Christ, and about 3,000 people responded. Talk about Bible understanding. Isn't it tragic today when there's such a lack of it? Individuals who promote and preach what the Bible doesn't teach. And so many are led astray because of it. How sternly you and I can appreciate the understanding found in the Word of God and, of course, our desire to always rightly divide it. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. As we come to those matters, perhaps one final lesson of the evening. Jesus cares. As you have thought with me about this scene of the arrest of Jesus, for just a moment, imagine what it was like to have been in Jesus' shoes. You and I don't like to think about enormous pain. It's a very uncomfortable thing. We just don't like it. When a doctor says what you're about to undergo is going to be excruciatingly painful, we have to go through it, but we sure don't like it. Think about Jesus. He knew very well spikes were going to be driven, nails, if you please, into his feet and hands the next morning. He knew very well there was going to be a crown of thorns pushed down on his head with blood dripping down his body. He knew there was an intense scourging yet to come. All the while, he could perhaps have had a mentality to where Malchus might not have mattered a lot. But our Savior didn't feel that way. He cared enough to on the spot heal Malchus's ear. On the spot, and isn't it interesting, this is the last record of any of the miracles Jesus performed. 
The first one had been turning water to wine at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, and the last one was healing the ear of Malchus. Now we know that the God of heaven would perform a great miracle raising from the dead, of course, on that Sunday morning. But Jesus healing that ear of Malchus, doesn't it testify one more time that the fact our Savior cares? As you and I develop that, why don't we do it like this? What Peter had done wasn't the appropriate thing. It wasn't a just thing to have done. And Jesus on the spot was concerned enough about Malchus to perform a miracle to heal him. Our Savior cares. You'll notice just a few of the passages that highlight so greatly how that's a meaningful truth to you and to me. In Hebrews 4.15, we read this unforgettable statement. We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. I suppose we often lay an emphasis from that verse on the last part of it, yet without sin, and that's a vital truth. Did you notice with me what came earlier? We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's my infirmities and yours, and Jesus knows about it, and He cares. He doesn't want you to fall beneath the burden and power of those infirmities. He wants each of us to never forget He was tempted to in every way like you and I ever will be. And He emerged victorious. He did not succumb to those temptations. He was tempted like as we are, but never sinned. He cares then, and He is able to be the source to which you and I can go so that when we have hard times and difficult decisions and tremendous challenges, can we not rely upon Him? In Hebrews 2.18, we read, He is able to succor, S-U-C-C-O-R, you and me. And that word means to render help or render aid. And the reason is because He can say, I've been there. I know what you're going through. May you and I always then be quick to turn to Him. Because He cares. Sometimes in our songbook we sing a song, Oh yes, I know He cares. Do we believe it? Let us have confidence in that statement and the truth that goes with it. You might also notice in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus issued an unforgettable invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Who is He inviting to come? Those with no problems? Those with no difficulties? Of course not. You who are troubled, you who are heavy laden, come to me. Why? Verse number 29 tells us, For His yoke is easy, His burden is light, and He says, I am able to be the one to whom you can come. As you and I give thought to those things, look at these next verses if you would. Do you remember some examples found in the Word of God that testify so swiftly and so greatly about the Lord's caring characteristic? When Lazarus passed away in John chapter 11, Jesus, of course, loved Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. And when the Lord came, He found the crowd weeping, and so too Martha and Mary and the shortest verse in the English New Testament reads like this, Jesus wept. He shed tears because of the great difficulty and the loss that was surrounding and so motivating the life of Martha and Mary. 
Does Jesus care when you and I suffer great losses in life? Does He care when your beloved spouse passes on? Does He care when, in fact, the difficulties of life surround and seemingly engulf you? He sure does. He cares. He cared enough to heal Malchus's ear. In addition to that text, in Mark 6, 34, Jesus showed compassion on a crowd that was hungry. They had been with Him, listening to Him teach all day, and He would not send them away empty. He had compassion on them. Finally, in Mark 10, 21, there was a rich young ruler who, with such excitement, came to Jesus and said, Good Master, what must I do? As Jesus taught that man, we ultimately remember the man went away sorrowfully, but Jesus, the text says, loved him. It bothered Jesus. He loved that young man. He cared about his soul. But Jesus wouldn't force him to be obedient. That was left to his decision. Jesus cares enough to put the truth before you and me, but he leaves us to make the decision. He always cares. As you and I close that slide, his goal is stated thus in Luke 19.10. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He cares about each and every individual. And He wants everybody to be saved. He shed His blood for every one of us and every one of them. Isn't it true then that we appreciate that's how much He cared? He went to the cross with all of its excruciating agony, with all of its excruciating pain. That's how much He cares. Is there someone in the audience tonight that perhaps has been impressed with how much He cares and thus how quickly you ought to rush to His side? In conclusion to this lesson, we've studied Malchus admittedly. And what a vital set of truths we have learned that I'll just simply try to summarize like this. We must take all that the Bible says on a subject before we know the full truth of it. We furthermore have learned the danger of being impetuous. We have seen furthermore about the interesting and powerful truth necessary in correct Bible understanding. And finally, the tremendous and powerful matter of the caring aspect of Jesus. This very evening, if there would be somebody in the audience, perhaps one or even more, that would find yourself in dire need of responding publicly to the gospel, let tonight be the night. This is a congregation that would love to rejoice with you, to celebrate with you, to appreciate the greatness that would follow as you come to the Son of God tonight. In fact, if there's one or more in the audience that's never rendered initial obedience, you too, as we studied earlier tonight, need to hear the gospel as you've done. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the only begotten Son of God and be baptized. And if we could help you accomplish those things tonight, let us know. If you have known that attribute of faithfulness, but you have wandered from the fold of rightness, you've been guilty of the same things the church in Ephesus was in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. Why not come back to your first love tonight just like they were admonished to do, and we would be happy to pray for you. God has promised to forgive you if you will confess those sins and bring them, of course, to Him. If you repent and confess them, God will forgive, and we'd be happy to pray to God for you. If tonight we could be of help to you, why not come even now at this very moment while together we stand and sing?